Father, your goodness really is unmatched. And we see it most clearly in your son, Jesus. Dying for our sins, resurrecting for our life and justification and redemption. Offering forgiveness of sins through repentance. That is the good message of salvation. The good work of your son, the good plan that you've executed. We thank you and we praise you for it. Fathers, we open your word and study your scriptures. We pray that you would make them compelling to us, alive. That you would apply them by your spirit and accomplish the things that you've done in them in our hearts. You are the living Lord. You were present for what we're going to study today. Nobody knows better what it means than you. So enlighten us, instruct us, make it clear for us, Father, and work it into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, please take your Bibles with me and open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 36. So we are not only at the end of Luke's Gospel, but it's the last day of the Lord in this particular passage before His ascension into heaven with the Father. It's a fitting end for Luke's Gospel. It anticipates the book of Acts, but really also the continuing ministry of the church. So it's fitting that Christ here ascends into heaven at the end of this Gospel, but also that He instructs His disciples and by extension, the church at large. As we consider verses 36 to the end of the book, verse 53, what we come to find is New Testament resurrection ministry. That's what Jesus is preparing His disciples for. That's what He's preparing us for. That's what we are to see out of it. And so He will do things like instruct us and build us up and prepare us and produce some things within us that are necessary for us to serve Him And be used by him. The three things that we will consider today. They also happen in necessary order. What I mean by that is the the one who would serve Christ. Must not only encounter Christ as he is in this text. But also in the very ways that he's encountered in this text. In the very order. So look with me in chapter 24 verse 36. Let's read the passage. Luke writes and he reports about this last day and he says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? That it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. The very first thing that we see Jesus doing on this last day, spending his last moments with the disciples, caring for them, the first thing we find him doing is building up their faith. Verses 36 through 43, he builds up their faith. Every devoted disciple of Jesus and follower of Jesus must be built up in their faith to the point of wholly convinced Jesus is living, is resurrected, is the one and only true Lord and Savior. That's the goal of our belief. In fact, I would say most of the church's hindrances when it comes to things like evangelism and service and worship and devotion and things of that sort, most of the church's hindrances aren't for lack of knowledge or facts, but they are produced out of a lack of faith. We are a people who struggle to believe what the Scriptures say. We are a people who struggle to remember in faith all the truths concerning Christ. You could say it maybe a little bit more simply. Our great obstacle in ministry and obedience is our lack of faith and belief that Christ really is alive. And that being alive, He commands us and enables us to serve Him. The old adage is unfortunately true for us. Out of sight, out of mind. That's often how we treat Jesus. We tend to forget that He is currently, even now, alive on His throne. And living He instructs you on how to honor Him. And He enables you to carry it out. The true disciple, the one who is following after Jesus, must be built up in their faith to the point that the resurrection of Christ, the fact that He is living and worthy of worship and worthy of following and worthy of obedience, that fact is always before the one who has faith in Jesus. We tend to be like our spiritual forefathers, the disciples, as they are found in verse 36. They're in an undisclosed place here in Luke's gospel, and they're talking about the things that have happened. Not just the trial, arrest, death, and now resurrection of Christ, but more specifically verse 34 and 35. They came together and they realized the Lord has risen indeed. He's appeared to Simon. Then the two disciples who were with Jesus and Emmaus told what had happened to them on the road, how he had made himself known to them in the breaking of the bread. They are talking about those things. 
the, the evidence and the facts and the proof that Jesus really is alive and really is resurrected. And yet, there's still a hint of unbelief. There's still a caution. There's still a hesitancy to wholly surrender themselves in full conviction and con- convincing to Jesus' resurrection. So the Lord appears in verse 36. Much like He disappeared with the disciples uh, in Emmaus, He now supernaturally appears before them. And He greets them. Peace to you. This is remarkable because on the very last day of His life here on earth, before ascending to the Father, of all the things He could be doing, all the works He could be accomplishing, all the people He could be appearing to, He comes back to His chosen to strengthen them. What care does Christ exemplify here? And what desire does He have for those He's chosen to truly believe? His last act with them is an act of patience, an act of care, an act of edification. So He shows up and He says, Peace to you. This isn't a moment of fear. This is an occasion for peace. Nonetheless, verse 37 They're startled and frightened. They thought they saw a spirit. We should not look down on the disciples because we would think the same. I don't know about you, but I've never had anybody appear to me in a locked room. But that's exactly what Jesus does. And just like they saw him walking on the water earlier on in their lives, they think he's now a ghost. We're having some hallucination or or some divine vision here Jesus directs their attention in verse 38 to the physical properties of his body in verse 38 and 39 why are you troubled why why do doubts arise in your hearts don't you see see my hands see my feet that it's I myself touch me and see Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. See with your eyes. Touch with your hands. He does the same thing to Thomas at the end of John's gospel. Put your finger in the hole in my hands. Put your hand in my side. Look at the crucifixion marks. Believe. Jesus is inviting real inspection here. Examine me. Look me over. Utilize your senses. Use your eyes and use your hands and use your mind. In verse 40, when he said this, he showed them the nails, nail scars, the physical properties of his body. This is a clue into our resurrected state, isn't it? What it will be like when we are lifted and made alive again with Christ. But more immediately, it is resounding proof that Jesus had a real physical bodily resurrection. He tells his disciples that that much. This is it is I myself, the, the emphasis being I myself. It's nobody else. It's it's no vision. It's, it's no hallucination. It's no ghostly presence. It's me really, fully, completely, totally alive. As alive as you are. 
verse 41, they disbelieved for joy and were marveling. What an interesting phrase, isn't it? They disbelieved for joy. We might say it in our day and age. We might say, it's too good to be true. Or I can't comprehend it because of the joy that's in my heart. That's what's going on with these disciples. Imagine the scene. All of a sudden, they're being convinced. They've seen Jesus before, but now they're touching Him. And now they're conversing with Him. And and now they're spending time with Him. And they're being convinced. And their faith is being built up by Christ. and, And it's a scene now of joy. Disbelief joy. This is far better than anything I could have imagined. I've been in the lowest of lows these last few weeks. Because my Lord was crucified. I didn't know what the future would hold. Now my master is alive. And he's not just alive in a spiritual sense. He's alive in flesh and bone. He's alive physically. He's alive in reality. I can touch him. I can see him. I can hear him. And to drive his point home even further, Jesus knows that there's so much joy in their heart they can't comprehend the moment. He says, do you have anything here to eat? And they give him some fish and he eats. And Luke says he ate before them. Which is a clear indication he eats for them. This, this appearance here at the end, the last day before he ascends. This appearance to his disciples. He doesn't do it for his own sake. He does it solely for their sake. He offers His hands to be seen. He offers His flesh to be touched. He offers His company and His voice and His presence. He offers to eat in front of them. Not because He's hungry, but so that they might see and believe. Christ desires immensely for His disciples to have faith. Not just faith in His crucifixion, but faith that He is alive after the crucifixion. And why is that? Because of what he says in verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. And those who are going to bear witness to Jesus. Must be fully convinced. That he is alive. And that the tomb is empty. And that the cross was not the end. But he is living forever. Because what are we bearing witness to? We're bearing witness to a resurrected Jesus. We've stated this before and we'll say it again. Our Christian faith rises and falls on Jesus' resurrection. And so if we are proclaiming the gospel, if we are bearing witness to Christ's saving work, then we must be people who bear witness to the fact that He is also alive. And that is how He saves Are we wholly and totally and completely and internally convinced that this isn't just some historical figure that we read about, but Jesus truly, really, physically has conquered the grave? That's the faith that Christ builds up in these disciples. That's the faith that He would build up in in you and I. And that's the faith and conviction we must have if we're going to proclaim the gospel Because gospel proclamation doesn't just lie in the cross, but in a living Savior and Lord.
We must say at this point, though, before you think you can convince yourself that faith in the resurrected Jesus isn't produced again by facts or by evidence or even by Christ appearing. I fully believe that Jesus could appear right now in in front of us, before us, in front of this community, Weatherford, and there would still be some who would not believe. What is required to believe and have faith in Jesus is that He does the work of opening your heart to see Him. What did it take for these disciples? They're designated by God's foreordination to be witnesses to the world about Jesus and the, the, the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. What does it take for them to be wholly convinced? It takes a divine, supernatural work of God. And thus Christ actually shows up in their presence, in their company, to build their faith. That they might see and believe. Just like he did with the disciples in Emmaus. Opened their eyes to see. Just like he's doing here. Opening their eyes to see. And the same is true for generation after generation. All the way to us and to the end of humanity. We must be a people who plead with God to open our eyes to see. To believe. To be born again and regenerated. To behold the glory and wonder of a living, resurrected Savior who's conquered death on our behalf. We will remain blind until God intervenes. But a text like this shows us just how much God desires to intervene. And so what do we do as a response? We make it our heart's prayer, continual prayer, to plead with God to give us eyes to behold and faith to believe. Convince us, Christ. Every day convince us. Every month convince us more. Every year convince us more and more and more. And let us be gripped by the belief that you are the living Savior. That you are resurrected. That you exist forevermore. And I firmly believe. With sincere desires and pleading. Jesus will convince us. Not by us touching his physical hands. But by him touching our hearts. With his grace. What is required for the ministry of the church. And the glory and proclamation of Christ. It first is built upon your faith. Jesus, building up your faith to believe in Him. For we are a people who don't just proclaim a dead Savior. We have to be a people convinced of a living Savior proclaiming a living Savior. Number two, He doesn't just build their faith. He prepares them for ministry. Verses 44 through 49. One of the great truths that I have thanked God for many times is that He is not a God who saves us and then leaves us on our own to figure it out. He is a God who is very highly, personally involved in our lives. In every area of our lives. To make us useful, to help us understand, to instruct us, to make us more like Jesus. 
So we find him all throughout the Bible being a God who is intimately involved in every detail of every person's life. He sanctifies us. He disciplines us. He gives us understanding of the Bible. He builds up our faith. He calls us out. He gives us wisdom. In every way, God is involved with us. We see that here again with His disciples. Before His ascension, He is not cold-heartedly leaving them to figure things out or leaving them on their own. He's instructing them. In fact, He's really doing about five things. He's clarifying, He's investing, instructing, planning, and enabling His disciples. So much so that they will be totally equipped for His ministry, His calling. He starts by, verse 44, doing what he did to the disciples in Emmaus or on the way to Emmaus, restating that the whole of the scriptures point to him. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's all encompassing. Moses, prophets and Psalms. All of Scripture points to Jesus. Thus, all of Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus, and all of Scripture is now interpreted by Jesus. You and I can no longer read the Old Testament without reading it in the light of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. All of Scripture finds its fullness and its beauty and its vindication in this living, resurrected Jesus and he would have his disciples before they go out to bear proper witness he would have them to have this foundational understanding that scripture is about Jesus they'll say it again in verse 46 thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead everything about this word from God has to do with Jesus it points to his suffering it points to his resurrection. It points to his plan of redemption. James Edwards about this verse wrote and said, The Old Testament is in totem or total, a primer on the nature and character of God. So that those who are learned in the Old Testament and that nature and character of God will recognize its manifestation in Jesus. What he's saying is this. Those who know the Old Testament in its totality clearly see the person of Jesus Christ manifesting it. And so Jesus tells the disciples, before I leave you, build you up in your faith, and I'll lay a solid foundation for you. All Scripture testifies to and is fulfilled in Jesus. That's a life-altering teaching. Because what that says to you and I is that all the works and all the teachings of God and all the characteristics of God, all of them find their fulfillment in Jesus. That He's the center of our understanding of God. If you and I want to know who God is, we have to look into the face of Jesus. That He's not only the center of our understanding of God, He's the center of our relationship with God. If you and I want to relate to God, we have to relate to Him through Jesus. And as Jesus does. 
which carries a, a whole host of implications. It includes things like pleasing Him and obeying Him and worshiping Him and glorifying Him. If we want to do any of those things, we find their fulfillment and their culmination first and foremost in Jesus. You want to please God? You start with Jesus. You want to worship God? You start with Jesus. You want to glorify God? You start with Jesus. You want to serve God? It starts with Jesus. He is the very centrality of the whole message and plan and purpose of God. And that's exactly what he says. And nothing less when he says all scripture, everything written about it must be fulfilled in me. It's all centered and built upon and hinged upon me. And anything that we might have to do with the God of the universe must be dealt with through the understanding of his son, Jesus Christ, primarily as he suffers on the cross and as he's resurrected from the dead. And those of us who are going to bear proper witness to the saving work of Christ must have that as our foundation that our faith rests upon. Not only are we a people convinced that He absolutely is resurrected and alive, but we are a people convinced that He is the very center of the glory and plan and purpose of God. And thus everything points to Him, flows from Him, funnels through Him, and everything we do is about Him. You and I are like these disciples. They are our spiritual forefathers called to take the mission of the church forth after the ascension of Christ. And as Jesus instructs them, he by extension instructs us, have a proper understanding of who Jesus is in relation to God and the plan and purpose and works of God and the word of God. Well, not only does he lay this foundation, but then verse 45, he does what's necessary. He opens their minds to understand it. The divine passive again, a little bit more explicit. He opens their minds to see the truth of Scripture, not just know the facts, but notice, take note of the use of the word understand. The light of the spirit shines in your heart upon the scriptures of God to know them. That is a work of God that takes place now in conversion. God saves people and in saving them, he gives his indwelling spirit and in in giving his indwelling spirit, he illuminates his word. First Corinthians chapter two, Paul says this. Hopefully you were thinking about this, this passage. He says in verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual Because the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. A work of God in giving his Spirit is making Scripture known to us, illuminating Scripture so that you and I can understand it. So a test of your salvation is if you understand Scripture. 
not all the ins and outs and theological debates concerning Scripture, because there are plenty, but your mind and your heart has been given over to believe it, surrender to it, and recognize the voice of God in it. In fact, John Calvin, when writing about his conversion, described his salvation in these very terms. He wrote and he said he had a sudden change in which God brought his mind to a teachable frame. Which means he came to a realization and an understanding of the scriptures that he submitted himself to. He later would write that it was an inward persuasion of the spirit that helped him to understand scripture and thus see the majesty of God and believe. Have you had an inward persuasion of the Spirit that helps you to behold the majesty of God in Scripture and believe? For those of us who are disciples and followers of Christ who will bear proper witness to the glory of God in this world through the proclamation of the Gospel, we must have our Minds open to understand the scriptures. Not just be known, not just know that they point to Jesus and are fulfilled in Jesus and interpreted by Jesus, but wholly convinced and understanding them. This is the work of God. This is the work of the Spirit. Jesus does it here with his disciples and God still does it today. Which, side note, tells us that understanding is not a mere work of study or wrestling with Scripture. Those, those, though those things are important. Understanding is a divine work of the Spirit of God. So that what Jesus said in John 10 would be true of us all. My sheep know my voice. They hear it and they recognize it and they follow it. How is that possible if God does not first? Open our minds and hearts to understand the scriptures. Let me say this before we move on. It is not only a mark of conversion that you understand the scriptures. But it's also a necessary requirement for you to understand or to serve God and bear witness to him. It's a necessary requirement that you understand the point and purpose and theme of Scripture for you to bear witness to God, which elevates the preaching of His Word, the study of His Word, the edification of His Word. So the Lord is found preparing them by laying a foundation of Scripture, understanding of Scripture, opening their minds to understand the Scripture. And then verse 46 and verse 47, He even gives them the message that they are to proclaim and bear witness to. The message is that Christ suffered on the third day, He rose from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name. Suffering, resurrection, repent, forgiveness. That's the message you and I share. That's the message you and I have. And that's everything to us. And that's everything to humanity. That's, that's the treasure that you and I have in jars of clay. If we stop short 
of any of those things, if we stop short of the resurrection or the call to repentance, then we have not properly discharged our calling. We must be a people who proclaim that Jesus not only died, but is alive. And in living, you have to give an account to him. And thus must repent if you want to be forgiven of your sins. Verse 46 and 47 are really not just uh, a summary of the Gospel of Luke, though they are that. All of the Gospel of Luke is condensed down to verse 46 and 47. But they're a, a summary of the mission and purpose of Christ. And you know what is strangely absent from this? This message that Jesus entrusts to his disciples? What's absent is his birth. And his ministry, his miracles, his teachings, his relationships. None of that is found in this message that we proclaim. Those things are important and we celebrate them, no doubt. But Jesus doesn't include them in the message that his disciples are to bear witness to. The gentleman James Edwards again says it like this. He says, one could appeal to Jesus as the greatest teacher, the greatest miracle worker, or the greatest human being who ever lived and still miss his single defining purpose. To die for the sins of the world and be raised from the dead for its redemption. Verse 46 and verse 47 are the defining purpose of Christ. To die for the sins of the world and to be raised for their justification and redemption. And if we stop short of the resurrection, if we stop short of the call to repentance, if we stop short of the cross, then we can proclaim all we want to proclaim about Jesus, but miss his singular defining point. In other words, Jesus prepares his disciples for ministry by saying, don't miss the point. You and I can debate about secondary issues all day long. And some of us might. And that's good and that's edifying and that builds us up to understand God and the character of God and the things of God. But if we miss out and get sidetracked from the gospel, we are far worse off. Though we might disagree on many things, we can never disagree on this singular defining work of Jesus that forgiveness of sins is found through repentance and trusting in the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ this world church it doesn't need some of the things that we think it needs some of the things that many people are building their ministries and lives on the world doesn't need it's it's felt needs to be addressed. The world doesn't need vain promises from vain preachers about wealth and prosperity and health and an easy life. And The world doesn't need a softened and palatable message. The world needs to know that they need forgiveness of sins. And that sin has condemned them. And that they will give an account to, an, to a living God. And that the only way to be forgiven of such sin is by turning to Jesus and trusting in His death and resurrection on your behalf. And that's not a work you do. That's a work produced in you by God. When God livens your heart to believe. 
your heart burns at the message of the gospel, if your soul and spirit is being called by God and yearned to God, you have a tremendous opportunity to be saved and forgiven of your sins. There's absolutely nothing you and I can do to earn pardon of our guilt. But Christ has pardoned us with His blood. And those who are called to Him can find forgiveness of sins by repenting, turning from themselves and their sinful ways and trusting in Jesus' work done for them. Let me speed up. There's just so much to say here. As He instructs these disciples on what they are to say, I want to take note of something He adds at the end. This message is to be proclaimed in His name. And I want to say two things about that. Number one, I want to say we should never be ashamed of proclaiming salvation in Jesus alone. Though it may cost us everything. Sometimes I fear churches and professing believers are content doing what they call missional work or outreach or evangelism, which is nothing more than good social initiatives and having never mentioned the name of Jesus in it at all. I unfortunately visit with many pastors who think they are doing kingdom work and kingdom good and leading their church to do the same. And when I ask how many times they shared the gospel on such and such trip, they say never. Proclaiming the message of Christ involves proclaiming it in His name. And we should never be ashamed or afraid to declare the truth of God in the name of Jesus, though it may, like it has many brothers and sisters, cost us everything. The world doesn't deem it as socially appropriate to mention Christ in a conversation. But that's what we are called to do. Secondly, I would highlight, this is a verbal proclamation. Your Christian example will never be enough to save somebody. Never. You might be the best moral person that a, an individual ever sees in their entire life. They might watch you pray over your lunch and over your dinner. But if you don't share the gospel with them and call them to an account in repentance, they will never be saved. Your example is not enough. Faith comes by hearing, Paul says, and hearing through the word of God. And how are they to hear unless they are sent? And how are they to hear if a preacher doesn't go to them? Somebody doesn't open the gospel before them. You and I are called to unashamedly and verbally share the name of Christ so that people will be saved. Don't look at the commissioning of Christ here and think, I can just live a good social example in this society and that will be a good positive Christian witness out there. That's not at all what Jesus is getting out. He's looking at his disciples and he's saying, you will be verbal witnesses in my name to the world around you. And that and nothing less than that is our calling. By all means, 
honored Christ with your morals and your example. And please continue to thank God for your lunch and your dinner and do all these other wonderful Christian things. But don't think you're going to win over people in your family and your workplace and your neighbors and at the gas pump and in the bank and at Walmart just by being a good person. Nobody has looked at the example of a Christian and said, I'm convicted of my sin and need to repent. The testimony of Scripture is that they look at Christians and say, fools, until God awakens their heart through the proclamation of the gospel. So he gives the message. He governs the message. You and I are to proclaim it in his name. Verbally share it in his name. Anything less is not following this commission. Then he gives the plan. Because we have a natural question. How are we going to do all this? Right? This is, this is kind of crazy. Where do we go? What do we say? Uh, you've given us what to say. So, so how do we go about implementing it? He says you are to do this to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting that the place where Christ's life ends is the place where the church's life begins? He tells the disciples, start where you're at and proclaim the gospel. Start where you're at and bear witness that I'm alive and resurrected and provide forgiveness of sins. Start with your family. Start with your neighbors. Start with your coworkers. Start with the guy down the street. On and on and on. Start where you're at. But don't stop there. Go to all the nations. To the end of the world. To the unreached. To the uttermost parts. Reach all humanity. People in your context and people far outside your context. People you know and people you've never met. Those are the people who are the object of our evangelism. Because every person needs to hear the gospel. Notice how broad and unbiased this commission is. Jew and Gentile alike are the benefactors of the message of Christ. This was foretold in Luke's Gospel. One thing we didn't do that you could spend a, a whole series on is looking at the parallels between the infancy narratives in Luke's Gospel and the, the crucifixion narrative at the end of Luke's Gospel. We didn't do that, but you could. If you back up into Luke chapter 2 where Jesus is just a baby, He comes into the temple and meets a guy named Simeon. Verse 27, he came in the spirit into the temple, Simeon did, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for because my eyes have seen your salvation. In the face of this child, my eyes have seen your salvation that you, God, have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon, filled with the Spirit, makes this prophetic declaration about this baby in his arms, this child Jesus. And by the end of his life, the day of his ascension, Jesus says, now enact that plan. And take my witness to the ends of the earth. 
to all nations, every people. It's a message that knows no boundary of ethnicity or race or gender or social, uh, socioeconomic status or national or political allegiance or any other social construct. It's a message that transcends all those boundaries and extends to people beyond all those boundaries. It doesn't matter where you've come from, how you were brought up, what you're doing now, or where you've been, or where you're going. This message is for all people. And Jesus instructs us, His disciples, to share this message to all people. To have a burdened heart for the lost. But truth be told, and God knows this, such a task is far beyond us. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Again, you are to testify to these things. But it's out of your uh, capability. Above your pay grade. And so he tells them in verse 49, the, one of the greatest promises you and I have on this side of the cross I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. The Holy Spirit is a great gift from God. A gift that enables us to complete this commission. To be saved, to be born again. And then to take this message of salvation to the ends of the earth. You and I can never do it in our own strength. We can never go across the street and share with a stranger in our own strength, share with our family members in our own strength, share with our children in our own strength. All of that is daunting. But we can do it through the power provided us from heaven in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The enemy will lie and lie and lie to you to tell you that you're unworthy, incapable, and that it's dangerous business. But God has enabled you to see it through. Anytime, frankly, we don't share the gospel when we're led to do so, it's an exercise in, in a lack of faith. Not believing this promise. Because Acts 2 has already happened and the promise is already fulfilled. We have the Spirit of God enabling us to proclaim the message of God. We have the Savior, we have the understanding, we have the message, we have the plan. And now we have the power to carry out the commission of Christ and glorify God by taking the message of redemption to the nations. Starting with those closest to us. I've wrote here and I've made a mark to share it with you as I've written it. And I would say to you that you are clothed with power from on high through the indwelling Holy Spirit so that you might bear gospel witness to Jesus Christ, His suffering, resurrection, and forgiveness of sins and repentance. What a great calling. Well, finally, Jesus has built up their faith He's prepared them for ministry by instructing, clarifying, establishing, laying out a plan, enabling them. Finally, He produces within them joy and worship. 
He leads them out as far as Bethany, the outskirts of town. It's also the same place we've seen it described in other places in Luke's Gospel as the Mount of Olives. And there he issues forth this priestly blessing. He blesses them verbally, but also with his arms visibly lifting up his hands over them, blessing their future, blessing their witness, blessing their understanding, all of those things. And as he's doing so, he parts from them and is carried up into heaven to the Father in glory. And all of a sudden, by the, by the end of verse 52 and 53, what was a startled, frightened, incapable group has had their fear replaced with worship and their doubts replaced with joy and their secrecy replaced with blessing God. And that's the case because Jesus has now fully convinced them He is fully alive. And in being fully alive, he has physically and really ascended into heaven at the Father's right hand. And that means several things. It means, number one, glory. Our Savior is not in the tomb. He is in glory. Clothed in glory. Eventually giving us that same glory. He's possessing eternal life. He's overcome death once and death no longer has any claim on him. He's alive forever. And those of us who are united with him will also be alive forever. He's now seated at the right hand of God. The seat of power. Interceding on our behalf. Declaring our righteousness before the Father. And instructing us and commanding us and filling us with his spirit. He's in the very presence of God preparing a place for us where one day we too will be in the presence of God. We now have a new spiritual relationship with Him instead of a physical one. He will now forever be spiritually present with you and I as believers. He's coming back. As Luke will report in Acts chapter 1 at the ascension of Christ, there's angels present. And they say, why do you stand looking into heaven? For the one you saw leave will come in the same way that you saw him go. All of these things give us understanding why the disciples will now walk away with worship and joy in their hearts. Because that is the only appropriate and proper response to being fully convinced Jesus is alive. And is in glory with the Father. Worship and joy. Worship because He's worthy. Worship because that's what we're called to. Worship is the culmination of our faith. The very heartbeat of us as new creatures in Christ. We desire, the very basic desire for every Christian is worshiping God. If that's not a desire of yours, let me tell you frankly, bluntly, you don't know Christ. Because if you do, Worship is your heartbeat. And joy. You're filled with joy now at a living Savior who loves you and intercedes on your behalf and lives so that you might live. All that to say, in short, these guys have encountered the real risen Jesus and it has changed them forever. What was once fear occupying their heart is now a desire for worship and joy carried out through the action of blessing God in the temple continually. 
And such a change is true for everybody who encounters Jesus. And so they can go forth from here in the mission of the church. You and I can go forth from here in the mission of the church, bearing witness to the world, telling the world of a living Savior who can forgive sins. And I find this to be a fitting in to the Gospel of Luke. Because as you and I have encountered Jesus as He's been revealed in this Gospel, I hope we too have been built up in faith, prepared for ministry, filled with worship and joy. We too should be called and compelled to the very same conclusion. Let's go to the ends of the earth and tell about this Jesus. That's the point of the gospel. That's the point of Christ teaching them on this final day. That in light of everything we know about Jesus and everything we've seen, everything that He's done, we too might respond with joy and worship and witness. Luke's Gospel was written for such reasons. Luke wrote his Gospel to a friend, Theophilus, that that friend might glorify God by believing in this Jesus and bearing witness to Him into the world. Unbeliever, today you can be saved. The opportunity for the forgiveness of sins is extended right now because God's hand of mercy is extended right now. Paul wrote, Behold, today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. And that's true until Christ comes back. Be saved today. Believer, be compelled today. Built up in your faith, increasing in your devotion to Jesus to proclaim this gospel message and worship Him and glorify Him in doing so. Those are proper responses to such a wonderful gospel and a wonderful Savior who's alive. Father, we thank You that You have given us this text. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You're doing the very same thing for us today, building up our faith continually, preparing us for ministry to be witnesses to the gospel and infusing our hearts with worship and joy. I pray, O oh God, that you would accomplish your purposes through your word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.